I was an English major in college, and I was a creative writing major, to be more specific. And one of the things they tell us in terms of you want to write a good story, there's this thing called the, the hero's journey. And there's these different type of phases that every main protagonist goes through. But the very first one is that there is a unique and exceptional origin or a unique type of birth or, some, or that they're in some sort of very different circumstance that brings them about uh, to the place that they're at. There is a story of an old couple named Martha and Jonathan, and they weren't able to have kids of their own. And one night as they were going back, they saw this meteor crash nearby. And when they got out of the car to look at this meteor site, they realized that it wasn't a meteor, but a little spaceship. Inside this little spaceship was a little boy. They ended up adopting this little boy, and this boy ended up growing up to be Superman. Uh, they realized that he had this ability to leap tall buildings in a single bound and run faster in a train, and he would do all of these great things. And you understand that that's, fic- that's a fiction, right? It's like a, a work of man. It's, it's, it's a fun story, but it's not real. Uh, but unlike characters of fiction, Samson and even all the other nativ- nativity-type stories in the Bible are actually true. All of these heroes' journeys that we see in the Bible are actual events. These are actual history based on real people, based on a real event, based on a real location, worshiping a real God, even sinning against a real God. This story, although it may sound like a hero's journey type story, is real. And they, even though they have these unique type of origins, it is used by God mightily this book (coughs) excuse me the book of judges takes place at a time where it's a time when israel's history was really bleak it's really dark there are sins committed by the israelites to one another that ultimately offends the lord and the reason for all that is simple is that they chose to do what is right in their own eyes yet despite all of this god is always found to be faithful in raising up different judges Remember, these judges are not like dudes in gavels and a wig and those robes, but these are more like the, those warlords or, or a deliverer. They're supposed to go and rescue the nation of Israel from their own sin, and then they're supposed to teach them and remind them of God. And as the story progresses, we see that that becomes less and less. They, they do do their deliverance, but they don't teach anymore. Their oppression time becomes longer and longer, and even their response time to cry out to the Lord becomes slower and slower as the story progresses each judge is worse than the last and each response is more wicked than the one before it this book speaks of a society of what happens when a nation decides to turn on god they just choose to not worship the god the one true god and decide to worship all of these other pagan gods when we get to chapter 13 this is the life of samson this is the, the birth of Samson. He is the final judge of this entire book. His narrative takes up about four chapters or so, and, but, but there is, and there is an, a, like a little long epilogue at the end, but he's the last judge of the entire book of Judges. And he's a, he's a famous character. There's action figures that are, na- that are made after him. Uh, in, in, in my daughter's children Bible, Samson is often viewed as like a really big, tough guy. You know, he's like 
Rambo or something. But he's, but don't think of him as that way. You know, think of him as like a scrawny little high schooler. Like think of one of the high schoolers that we have, like the skinny ones. That's what they, that's what Samson actually looks like. He's not someone that's like ripped. And that's where I think if you, as we continue on, you see why he, people are surprised by his abilities because he doesn't look the part. Samson is a famous character. And we know him. He's, he, he's the one that, I think he's the first character people go through when you think about the book of Judges. And although the story is of his birth, there are still lessons that we can learn from this. So that's it. Let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now the sons of Israel. <coughs> now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines. 40 years. This begins with a phrase that actually comes up more often than any other phrase in the entire book of Judges. That they once did what was evil. They did what was evil, and for 40 years, they were oppressed by the Philistines. And whenever you see this phrase, it's basically a new chapter, a new event, a new segment, a new story. And Samson here is the, is, it begins this, I mean, the writer of, of Judges begins this this last story of Samson, the last judge, with this phrase again. It's something we've seen over and over again. Now, what is intriguing about this is that you'll notice that Israel has stopped crying out to the Lord. Right? You've, you've, we've heard this phrase as we kept going through this book. You see that they, they were oppressed, or they, were, they, gave, they turned to, away from the Lord. They were oppressed, and they were afflicted, and then they cried out. At this point, at this this stage, in the time of Judges, they stopped crying. They didn't even care anymore. In this situation, even though they were suffering, they did not go to God and ask him to deliver them. This is what is missing in this opening portion of this chapter. Why did the Israelites stop crying to the Lord? It's because they have accepted the Philistines as their rulers, and they have no longer desire for any type of relief. Even though they were oppressed, even though they were afflicted, they decide, okay, what's the point? I'm just going to give up and let uh, these people reign over me. Sin has this false comfort in our lives. It might give us some sort of uh, illusion into our mind to think that, okay, even though I'm not, I might be like not growing in my walk, but every time I try to fight sin, it's just so difficult, and I, and I'm not, and I'm just tired of fighting sin. I'm just going to give up fighting sin. You understand that's actually detrimental for your walk in more ways that you can think about. You know, we talk, if you ever boiled like a lobster that you, or a frog or anything like that or any type of cooking, any type of these like cold-blooded creatures, the best way to do it is to leave it in the cold water and then slowly just kind of turn up the temperature and then the animal just kind of just doze off and next thing you know, they're dead. That's how sin works. Sin it functions. It, it, it's this, it gives you this false type of assurance and if you're not ready, if you're not attentive to your surroundings, it will end up destroying your life. Israel was being under the oppression of the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines were a sea people, meaning that they were people that, that liked to work on fish or work like you know, fishing or, or go on ships and go, uh, you know, they're basically their main job is to work with, with, in the ocean. And their god, the main god that they worship is Dagon. I've preached on Dagon once before on some other text, and I remember, remember if you remember, it was like the, it's the Starbucks logo guy, right? It's like the half man, half fish thing. 
somehow, and for some strange re- reasons, the Israelites were, were drawn to this false god. But another thing about the Philistines is that even because they were people of the sea, these people had one distinct look about them, and is that they had short hair. They had really short hair is because when you're working in the water, if you have to swim, the less you have on your head, the, the less weight that you're carrying. So these, there were these pictures of what the Philistines might have looked like, and all the men there had like shorter hair. Even the women had shorter hair, relatively speaking, shorter hair than all the other people at the time. And they gave them a really distinct look. When I was in seminary, one of the classes we had to take with Steve Lawson were on preaching. And in the very last class, I think it was almost like, like a non-essential portion of the class, he, he, he said that we need to dress the part. I, I am clearly not wearing what he's, he told us all to wear. But it's called the uniform. And Lawson popularizes so well in the Reformed Christian circles that R.C. Sproul hired him to teach all the Ligonier's guy how to dress like him. And they called it the Ligonier look. If you ever go to any sort of a Christian reform conference and there's like a Ligonier booth, they all look identical. You can, you can spot them from a mile away. It's like, oh, that guy is wearing the uniform. That guy, yeah, he's probably with Ligonier. Because that's the look that they have. They, they were able to stand out. The Philistines had the same thing. When you looked at them from a distance, just based on the way that their hair was uh, kept, you knew that they were a Philistine. And I say this not because, like, I care about what the Philistines look like, but file this on the back of your mind as we continue going on this chapter. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. The writer of Judges then transitioned to a scene that's seemingly insignificant. These two insignificant individuals, they're from a tribe of Dan, Dan is a small tribe that was a nomadic group of people. And in the beginning and in in the book of Judges, they're just seen just roaming around the land of Israel. In this chapter, God uses a couple from a tribe that had no land with a lady that can produce no children to save the entire nation of Israel. The wife here is just simply known as someone that's barren. Her name is not even given. Again, what is missing here compared to the rest of the narratives well, this wife here doesn't seem like she's crying out for a child. Even though she is barren, in that culture, barrenness is like a, they, they saw it as like a punishment or a curse from God. But she did not care. Remember, this is the time with judges. They did not care so much about what God had to say. They didn't care about their, the responsibilities that God has given them. They just did whatever they wanted. And one commentator sees the wife as a parallel to what Israel is going through at the time. He writes, her plights mirrors that of Israel as a whole, disgraced and powerless with nothing to look forward to but extinction. It is a scene of utter bleakness. God is, in fact, the one that intervenes and provides for them a child, a judge, a deliverer, even before Israel needed or even was aware that they needed a deliverer. Our God is a God that rescues. Our God is the same way. He cares and saves people before we even knew that we needed rescuing. God doesn't wait for you to rescue you. God has always prepared salvation beforehand for us. God has always saved us in spite of ourselves. God sent us a Savior when we didn't even need, when we didn't even think we needed one. As we're in Romans, we talk about while we were still yet enemies, He came to rescue us. He ransomed us. He's the one who acted first. 
And this is what's going on here. God acts first to save Israel, even though they don't even realize they needed saving. Verse 3, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. The angel of the Lord appears to the woman and tells her that you're barren. And I don't know, that's, that's the wisest thing to say, but the angel of the Lord says, so it's okay. The appearance of the angel of the Lord is an indication that things are about to change. He appears in the same way for Gideon, and in both messages, it's a message of hope. This announcement, although it was not something the wife expected, was still pleasantly surprising to her. This child is a special grace from God. Little does she know that this child is going to do more, not just for their family, but for the entire nation as a whole. This good, this good news here is not just good news for the family, but good news for the entire nation. Verse 4, now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing. The angel tells her that she will be pregnant, and then there's this common grace here that he's just telling him, you need to avoid these things to, to protect the child. God is protecting the child in the womb for a particular purpose. Again, I think when I see these passages, I just can't help but think about how God does, when the Bible speaks of God knitting the baby in the room in Psalm 139, it speaks that the life begins in the womb. The reason why God told him to hear, or told her there here, not to drink those things, not to cause any damage to the child. Life here begins in the womb. We see that with when John the Baptist was a baby, Jesus described there, they are all described as being their life in there. And it's God that ultimately the, opens the womb and places a child there. Verse 5, For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. She, told, she is told that Samson will be a Nazarite, and therefore he needs to be set apart. You don't have to turn there, but this reference is from Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6 is where they give you this instruction of the Nazarite vow. And it's, and it's important to understand the context of what was going on in the book of Numbers. Chapter 5, it speaks of what the role of the priest is. Like the priest had to be a, a particular bloodline, had to do a particular task. Certain, there's a certain way that they look, there's certain things that they do. But it's only narrowed to one particular group of people, one particular bloodline. The Nazarite vow is for everyone in the, in the, in the nation of Israel. Uh, chapter 6 of, of Numbers, verse 1. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from the wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seed even to the skin. So there are these three different uh, qualifications, the things that you're expected to do if you choose to do this vow. This vow is it's a voluntary type of vow. It's for men and women. The first thing they have to do is make sure that they do not drink anything that's from the, the vine. So uh, they can't even eat things like grapes because anything that has just even per, potentially can make them not sober or accidentally get them drunk. And understand that in this culture, they didn't have any choices. It was really just water or wine. You know, if you've ever been to my house, I usually would offer you a drink. I was like, do you want water? Do you want, like, carbonate water? Do you want juice? Do you want soda? What would you like? Uh, if, if at the time, if, you were, if I was in that time and you came to my house, I'd be like, do you want wine 
or water. That's all they had. It seemed like it was really uh, bland and there wasn't much, but that's just how it is. It's, it's, if you want to do this Nazarite vow, it's a life of discipline and devotion to God. That's the first requirement. They're not allowed to drink any wine. Second is that they're not to cut their hair. Uh, chapter 6 of Numbers, verse 5. All the days of his vows of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled, for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. This word Nazarite, it just basically means unkept. Uh, it's used to describe like a, like a plant when it just keeps growing when there is, and there's no one trimming it. That's like a Nazarite. And a Nazarite, when they, they're supposed to grow out their hair. Now what's interesting is because at the end of number chapter 6, they say that when you're done with the Nazarite vow, you're supposed to shave your head and throw it into the fire, signifying you're done with the vow, that you, you fulfilled the time commitment. But the time commitment, it, it, it depends on the person. So some people could be like, they won't just do the Nazarite vow for a week. So from the surface, it may not seem like their hair is growing out that long. But other people, they might do it for several months or several years. And that's when you know, okay, just by looking at them, they, even without asking any questions, you know that they're doing the Nazarite vow. It's a way to just distinct, make themselves distinct. They're supposed to have a specific uh, task that they're supposed to do. And a vow that they use to the Lord is to symbolize that type of devotion. And then, and the last thing. So first, it's like you can't drink wine. Second, you can't cut your hair. And third, is that you can't touch any dead things. Uh, Verse 6. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for her. Uh, make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or his brother or his sister when they die because the separation to God is on his head. All the days of separation, he is holy to the Lord. So part last thing is that they're not allowed to touch anything that's dead. So even if they, let's say, did a Nazarite vow, like right now, and then their relatives die, they have a choice. Because later on it does explain if they, choose, if they do touch a dead person, here's what they're supposed to do. They're basically supposed to cut their head and start all over again. But if that was not the case and they don't get defiled in any way, they're supposed to just stay away from anything that, that uh, is dead and that makes them unclean. There are three Nazarites that's in this entire Bible. Actually, from Numbers chapter 6 to Judges, that's like the very first time you actually see a Nazarite. And there are different uh, historical things that said that there were Jews during times of war that would do the Nazarite vow. Whenever there's a fight, they'll say, okay, we're going to devote our times to the Lord uh, through our prayer and for fighting for the Lord, and we're going to show that through the Nazarite vow. There are three Nazarites in the, in the Bible. The most famous one, Samson. And the second one that we'll see if we ever get there is in 1 Samuel. is Samuel. And last is John the Baptist. Each of them had a particular task designed uh, to them by the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Each of them had a t- particular task designed, designated to them by the Lord to do a particular task. And this is important background knowledge because you'll see in the life of Samson that he'll get rid of all three, all three of these. He fails to fulfill the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is unique because it's designed to separate a person for a specific amount of time for holiness and usefulness to the Lord. In the modern day, it may be something like fasting. That might be the equivalent. You set a designated amount of time for you to, to devote your time to prayer, so you give away food or whatever, so you can spend that time in devotion to the Lord. That's like, I think, the closest equivalent in a New Testament sense. This child was born with one particular purpose 
to live in this one particular purpose, and that's to save Israel. The purpose for him is stated here in verse 5, that he will deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He was born to be a kind of savior to the Israelites. Samson was supposed to have a distinct life for a unique purpose. And Samson has this unique call to be different. I think this is why God chose Samson to do the Nazarite vow. It's because when you look at the Philistines and you look at Samson, there's supposed to be a difference between the two. The Philistines had a particular look. The Nazarites also had a particular look. And when people saw, when the Philistines, when they look at Samson, they will wonder, why is his hair so long? Why is he like this? It's supposed to make people wonder who is this God that that he's devoted to. People are supposed to look at Samson and know right away that he is different. He is supposed to look different because the God, of, the God that Samson serves is different. He is distinct and he is holy. In the same way, Christians are called to be distinct and have a unique purpose. We're called to look and live differently from the world because that reflects our God. If you evaluate your life, ask yourself, are you different from those around you? The Christian's life expectation is that you need to be distinct. People are to look at you and wonder where you are from. If you ever visited some, if you ever gone to another country long enough, you'll realize something that if, if the country's really different, maybe like you go to like a eastern type of country from <coughs> from western or vice versa, you'll notice that there's different like co- code of conduct and dress code, right? Like whenever I go to like like China. Uh, it's really obvious, or any Asian country, that like after a while we kind of have this mutual agreement that we're that I'm not from here and they're not from where I'm from. You know, we just agree like their worldview is different, their wardrobe is different, their way of life is different. But if I let's say stayed in that country, whatever country it may be, and I start adopting these things, over time you'll see that I will become like them. I lose my Americanness if I slowly start doing the things that they do. So it is with us in this time of this world. This is not our home. We are supposed to look like heavenly citizens. Philippians 3 tells us that we are heavenly. We need to be heavenly minded because we're not of this world and we belong to this heavenly kingdom. In fact, the, the word citizenship means that it's a person that belongs to another group of people. There is supposed to be something about you and I that looks different. In the words, we'll let people know that we are not from here, that we belong to somewhere and someone else. When you are in the world, can someone pick you out as someone that doesn't belong there? Do you seem out of place in this world? Or have you already adopted the world's worldview, wardrobe, and way of life? Everything about you must be different from the rest of the world. Verse 6, then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of the Lord. Very awesome. And, and, I did not speak, and then I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Manoah's 
wife, or simply known as the wife or the woman here, tells her husband what, what just happened. She hurries and she tells her husband what she just experienced, that her description of the angel is that he is an awesome in appearance. He had no idea whether where this person is from. She relays this message that she receives from the angel to her husband. And again, there's some foreshadow here going on at the end of the verse that he'll be in Nazarite from the womb to the day of his death. Verse 8, Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. Verse 9, God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel Lord came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Noah heard but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Manoah asked God to repeat the exact same thing. And I find it funny that he actually does exactly the same thing. He, the, this angel Lord goes to the woman and speaks to her and not to him. So he has like, okay, this is, I'm imagining Manoah's like, oh man, this is not what I meant. I meant that, can I hear the message? Uh, but eventually uh, he does. And we see in uh, chapter, uh, verse 10. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. But then Manoah arose and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. The woman went back and reported to her husband that the angel of the Lord returned, and she asked, Did you, Are you the one that, said, that told this message to, to my wife? And in the original, it was really cool. It doesn't actually say, I am. It's just I. Like, like, like yes, like me. Like, are you the one? Me. That's what, uh, that's what the angel of the Lord's response was. Verse 12. Manoah said, Now when your word comes to pass, which shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? The angel, the, the reason why he wanted to receive this message again was because it was like a legitimate concern. He wanted to know how to raise his kid. But look how the angel responds in verse 13. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, or drink wine, or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. He repeats on what the wife needs to do. And what's interesting, he just essentially dismisses his question. His question, Manoah's question was, what are we going to do in the long run? How are we supposed to do that uh, like in the future? But what he instruct, what this angel tells him to do is what he needs to do in the moment. Manoah wants to know what he what he has to do once a kid arrives and how he's supposed to raise him after he's born. And even, perhaps even, how do we groom this kid if he's supposed to have this long hair? But again, the angel is of the Lord just instructs him about what he needs to do in the moment. God sometimes gives you what you need to know in the moment, not what you want to know in the future. Oftentimes we think the Bible is some sort of magical eight ball or, or some wishing well or some mirror that's supposed to somehow give us foresight into the future but instead the reality is that the bible speaks tells us not to worry about tomorrow not to think uh, about tomorrow because tomorrow may never come but rather just worry about the things of today it speaks of how we need to be faithful in the moments scripture instructs us to be faithful first how can you expect to know god's future will for your life if you not to if you do not submit to his moral will in the present the bible has all the answers and everything that we need to pertain to a life of godliness and wisdom to decide on different circumstances. The Bible, yes, it doesn't tell you, like, what college I need to go to, but it tells you what you need to do to be a hardworking student. The Bible doesn't tell you who to marry, but the Bible does tell you guidelines on what you need to look for and what you need to be. 
The Bible doesn't tell you what career you need to find, just that you need to be a good steward with your work and have a biblical understanding of work and not to be lazy. The Bible just gives us principles and commands on how we need to walk day by day close to him, which is what we need to do in the moment. So ask yourself this question. When you're praying to the Lord, when you're asking about, when you're, you're, when you're, you're praying to God, are, you, are, are your prayers only focused on things that you want down the line or, what, or God revealing something down the line, like open a certain door? How often are your prayers focusing on your own sanctification at the moment? Do you think how I can be more faithful? Do you think, do you ask, Lord, Lord, allow me to trust you more? Allow me to be obedient in my walk, my, in my daily walk. Give me a greater devotion to your, to, to your word and to prayer every single day. Or do you only think about, okay, Lord, if it's your will, then open this door. If it's your will, let this person go out with me. If it's your will, it's all these things that you want in the future without focusing on your, on your momentary obedience. Verse 15, then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord was not interested in the food that they had to offer. But he said, if you wanted to offer something, then offer it to the Lord. Because, again, they didn't realize that this is actually God. Uh, verse 17, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward the heaven that the angel Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their face, faces. They fell, to, fell on their faces to the ground. This is a kind of like a really interesting scene. That he, uh, Manoah asked him for his name. He said, it's too wonderful for you. And this idea is not like, and, and, and wonderful, what he's, he's trying to get at is that you will not be able to comprehend what my name is. This word wonder is used 13 times in the entire Old Testament, and every time it's used is to describe God. It's some sort of connection to God, whether it's his acts of salvation or judgment in history or his laws or, his, or any action that he does. The word wonderful or wonder it always attributes to him. Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Psalm 17, 7, Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. Psalm 31, 22, As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplication when I cried to you. There's a kind of progressive res- revelation here in the identity of the angel, the Lord is revealed as God himself. Manoah and his wife placed this offering. It burns up. The angel jumps in. He ascends up into the heavens. This caused them to put their face in the ground and worship. The response of time when they obtained God's revelation brought them to a humble state, and they began to worship the Lord. Whenever we understand things of Scripture, whenever you study a passage that you're wrestling through, and you understand it, and it clicks in your mind, 
whether it's, the, whether it's how great God is or what man needs to do, how sinful man is, does that make you want to worship God more? Does it cause you to, to love him, to devote your life to him when you see and understand his word? Do you understand that you, when you understand his word, is because God illuminated your heart and mind so that you can comprehend what you're reading? And when you understand those things, it changes your life and it makes you more joyful. And it should make you worship him more. I wonder if every time you understand a theological concept or a clear understanding of passage, does that make you love and devote your life to God more? You must remember and understand that every time we get knowledge and understanding, it is an act of God's grace in our life to draw himself closer, to draw us closer to him. The more we know about God, the greater we should be in worship and devotion to him. It means that the more scripture you have, the more you understand that you will cause your life to walk in faithfulness. If God's word becomes clear in your mind, the more you must devote your life to him. You are held accountable to what you know, so live out those things that you learned. Verse 21. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hand, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have kept, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. It finally dawned on Manoah that this is God himself, that this, the whole time that he was talking to someone, this angel of the Lord was actually God. It's funny that the husband was like freaking out, thinking, oh, we're all, we're going to die. And then the wife like wisely and like humorously confronts him like, you know, that God would not have told us all of these things about our kid coming and, and what he's supposed to do if he was going to kill us right now. It's one of those like duh moments, you know, but it's, I think it's funny because this happens actually multiple times in scripture. Uh, there's this, uh, in, in the New Testament, we see that when, uh, when, in one of the gospels, when the disciples were in the boats, they thought that they were going to die when there was a storm, but they forgot not that long before that that God has already told them that they're going to reach the other side. The disciples were horrified because they thought they would die, and yet Christ assures them that it's going to be okay. In the book of Acts, Paul knew that he was going to survive all these crazy circumstances because he knew that he was going to have to be persecuted down the line. There was this trust in God's sovereignty that Manoah didn't have, but that his wife had. Do you have confidence in the word of God? The future promises should cause us to have confidence in him. Whenever we see these promises of scripture that has yet to be fulfilled, it should cause us to, to, to rejoice. We get to see something that, that's miraculous that has yet to come. Right now in our life, everything that we see about the Lord is all written down, but there will come a day where we'll see those things come to pass. When you think about the book of Revelation, those things have not happened yet. But when they do, and when and, and, and I'm, I'm imagining when, it, when we understand what's going on, it will just be exactly how, how Scripture has, 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 been, has said it thousands of years ago. Knowing that God has preserved his word and knowing that his promises in the past has been kept should make us long for the promise that's yet to be fulfilled and gives us confidence in his word. Verse 24, Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. 
the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manuadan between Zorah and Estol. God's word indeed came to pass. The child was born. It's promised that, he, that the angel of the Lord has made them has, has come true. The child was born, the Lord blessed him. God, in this entire episode, uses random people, seemingly random people, from a tribe that has no land and a family that had no children. His purpose in this is to, is to raise up a savior, a savior that they do not realize that they need. God's calling for the Christian as well is to be different, to set apart. And all Christians' starting, port, starting point is extraordinary because all of us were chosen with a particular purpose. If you are here today, your conversion story, your origin story in Christ is a miracle because God has rescued you from a domain of darkness. He took out the hard-hearted, cold heart and gave you a beating new heart. All Christians are called to live out a life that's unique and different. The question that you need to ask yourself is, is that you? Are you different? What is more magnificent than the barren woman able to give birth is that Christ gave us a new birth. For those of us that are Christians, the miracle in your life is that God saved you out of your own sin. And just like Israel in this chapter that was saved by God without even knowledge or desire to be saved, so it is when, you, so it is when God opened your eyes and my eyes to our own depravity. When God saved us, he saved us with, with a particular purpose, to represent and to go and tell people about Jesus. When God saved you, he saved you when you have no clue that you need a saving. It's only after salvation when we realize what kind of dire situation that we're actually in. God rescued us from our own sin through his substitutionary work on the cross. He ransomed us with his blood and life so that we will have new life. Regeneration in the life of a believer is both a tremendous miracle and grace in our life. Not Because not only do we not deserve it, but we didn't even have any knowledge at one point that we needed grace in our life. Sadly, even though Samson has such a unique origin story in his in, uh, opening in his life, we'll see that he wastes his life. That even though in God's sovereign plan he uses sinful people, he, he, he could have been so much more. And we'll look at that in the, in the coming weeks from chapter 14 to 17. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for its accuracy, its its perfection we're grateful that you preserved <laughs> we're grateful that you preserved your word for all of these years and we're grateful that we're recipients of it we're grateful that we can understand it we're grateful that it's in a language that's easy for us to comprehend we're grateful that it's available to us and lord we do ask that as, as we are living our life that it be, that it, let it be distinct uh, let people know that we are not of this world that we represent you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, in the way that we talk to one another, in the way that we treat each other, in the way we talk about our life, in the way that we deal with trials. May it be different from the world. Lord, we know that the more distinct we are, the more people will be interested in, in wanting to know who you are, Lord. So, Lord, I beg that you that you help us mortify sin in our life. We know what is to come in the life of Samson. May that not be us. May we not make these small compromises that jeopardize our testimony. May we be mindful, attentive, and be humble enough to turn from every single sin 
knowing that these things are hindrance, uh, not only from being a good testimony, but hindrance from our satisfaction in you. And Lord, give us grace to be able to see that. We ask you these things in your son's precious name. Amen.